there was a company who wanted to kind of shake things up a little bit and get some new blood in there. And so they decided to hire a new CEO and the CEO wanted to make his mark. And so he took a tour around the, the facility, just kind of looking at things and overlooking what was going on, see if he could maybe make an example of somebody who was slacking off and somebody who wasn't doing their job. And so he was making the rounds and he came to a room that had a, you know, everybody was working, all the workers were working, but there was one guy who was standing outside and was leaning up against the wall and, and wasn't really doing anything, young guy. So the CEO walked up to him and he said, how much money do you make in a week? He wanted to make an example of him so everybody else could see. How much money do you make in a week? And the guy looked at him, he said, about $400, why? And he said, pulled out $800 and he said, Here, here's two weeks pay, now get out and don't come back. He's feeling pretty good about his decision, you know, and, and making himself known. And so he goes into the workers, and they all see this. And, and he says, now, can anyone tell me what that goof-off did around here? And one guy spoke up, and he said, well, he, he's the pizza delivery guy. So we are in the midst of a series entitled, Can You Relate?, in which we're looking at how do we relate in our relationships. We're looking at Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 5, which is similar to what he writes in Colossians, which is why I had Andrew read that this morning. Uh, his words in, in chapter 5 and, and chapter 6 about how we relate in, in our relationships, namely that of our marriages and our families. And then today is we're going to talk about how we relate when it comes to uh, the topic of work and, and in the workplace. And so I, I think there's a lot of good instructions, I and mean, we've got to mine a little bit, but I think there's some really good instructions for how we relate and how we connect between our relationship with Jesus and those, those things that we do and the people that we relate to in our work and in our vocation. So if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, again, similar to what Andrew just read. Ephesians chapter 6, we'll start with verse 5. Paul writes this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of just as you would obey. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him." Now, I want to begin, before we get into our lesson this morning, I do want to begin and just kind of set some groundwork or maybe give some context to this. A lot of times people wonder when you hear that term master and slave, uh, it's easy when you come to a passage like this, particularly, and I'm not saying any of us do here, but there's a lot of people in our world today that will use passages like this to say, you see, this is what you get with the Bible, and, and you know, whether it's demeaning to women or it's dealing with slavery, whatever, um, they'll use passages like this to say, see the Bible, I'm not going to take it seriously, I'm not going to take Jesus seriously. You might notice that Paul, as we just read, gives very plain instructions to masters and slaves. How do masters deal with their slaves, their servants? How do servants or slaves deal in relation to their masters? But nowhere throughout this passage does he condemn slavery itself. And a lot of people have a hard time with that. But this is a great illustration of the power of context and understanding context and why it's so important to understand the context of something that you're reading. Understand that, that what Paul is talking about when it deals with slaves and masters here, 
he's not talking about slavery in the way that you and I typically think of slavery. Uh, slavery actually, actually was very common uh, back in the first century in Greece and in Rome. I was reading some stuff uh, this, this past week. It's estimated that as many as a third, even up to a well, two-fifths, I guess, but it's much easier to say a third, but 40% possibly of the entire population of Greece and Rome were slaves. That's a large number of people who were slaves. Uh, and, and slavery in the first century was very unlike what you and I typically think of as slavery today. When, when I say the term slavery, generally speaking, we probably think of 17th century and beyond slavery, race-based slavery that started in Africa, Europe, eventually was brought over to America. That's usually the idea that's in our head when I say slavery. And so we read a passage like this, and we read it through that lens, and it's easy to think, well, why doesn't Paul, why doesn't he condemn it? See, this is why the Bible doesn't make sense. It's not relevant. When, in all actuality, that's not the slavery that Paul is dealing with here. The master-slave relationship in race-based slavery is very different than what it was in the first century church issue that Paul is dealing with here in Greco-Roman culture. In fact, let me just give you a couple examples. In the first century, slaves were not necessarily distinguishable from anybody else based on their race or their clothing or their uh, speech or any of those other things. In in other words, if you looked at a, a slave, you might not know he was a slave or she was a slave, you know, just by looking at them. They, they looked and acted, <coughs> excuse me, just like everyone else. In fact, many slaves were educated, even more highly educated than their masters. In, in some cases, some slaves held managerial positions where they were in charge and managed other people. Many slaves owned as, or excuse me, made as much as free laborers did, which is I'm not going to get into all the reasons why you became a slave. Very different. You know, you, you became a slave in 17th century and beyond because of kidnapping. I'll get to that in a point uh, in a minute. Or because you were born into slavery. And so it just continued. But in, in first century times, many people actually made themselves slaves or servants because of the economic advantages that were associated with that a lot of times. There were other reasons, but that's one of uh, the reasons. They were not denied public assembly or the, the right of public assembly. They weren't socially segregated, nor were they viewed as inferior uh, simply because of their race, which is another form, uh, another a- aspect of, of the slavery that we often think of. Also, and this is a big deal, instead of uh, being a slave for life, which is usually what's associated with 17th century and beyond race-based slavery, most slaves in the first century could reasonably hope that by the time they had spent, and I know this seems like a long time, but 10 to 20 years max in serving, no later than their 30s, they could, be, they could reasonably hope to be freed. And so in race-based slavery, you were a slave for life, unless somehow out of the goodness of their heart, they you know, thought it to, to, to give you your freedom. But in first century slavery, that, that wasn't the case. You, you worked for a certain amount of time, and then you were even able to buy your freedom. And so just very different. I say all that to say that the, the slavery that is pictured here in Ephesians, that's going on that Paul is addressing here in Ephesians, is far different than the kind of slavery that you and I think of, which is that race-based and oftentimes slavery for life um, type of slavery. It's also interesting that, and I mentioned this a second ago, that oftentimes the slavery for life, the, the race-based slavery that we think of, uh, got its, it was resourced and kind of started through kidnapping. They were taken and then, you know, from their families and then shipped off and, and, and sold. The Bible uniformly condemns kidnapping. 
And so again, I, I, maybe I brought it up and maybe you weren't even thinking about it, but just in case you were, just wanted to give some context to what's going on here. When Paul writes about slave relationship, it's not in the same way that you and I think of. In fact, uh, you know, Paul writes here and in other places to say to, to slaves, you, you need to be respectful of your masters. In fact, if you go back and read the book of Philemon, that's what that is, that master-slave relationship and, and, and respecting the position that you're in. And so that's some of the story behind what's going on here and how that master-slave relationship, very different than what we typically think of um, in race-based slavery. But all that being said, as for our lesson this morning, there is some application, I think, for us when it comes to our vocation, when it comes to our work. Now, let me also give some context to that, because when I say work or vocation, I don't mean just what you get a paycheck for, okay? Some of you don't have a nine-to-five job or eight-to-whatever job that you have. Some of you do volunteer work. Some of you are involved in, uh, in, in other civic responsibilities, some of you are stay-at-home moms or dads. Whatever the work that you're doing is, you can kind of lump this in, okay? So I don't just mean a nine-to-five job that you get your paycheck for. So just understand that as we, we kind of get started here. But I do think there are some principles for us. Let me just lay down a couple of, of foundational principles. And the first one is this. God is a worker. It's not in your notes, but uh, certainly you can write it down. God is a worker. The very first time we see God, God is working. He is creating. He is molding. In, in, in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's no end to the occupational hats that he wears. I like how one person put it. He said, God is a strategic planner, a designer, a civil engineer, a real estate developer, a project manager, manager, an artist, and many more. I love of God. And you just go read passages like Psalm 104, and you see God's activity in his creation. It's no wonder that Jesus would come along and say in Matt, or John chapter 5, verse 17, my father is always working because God is a worker. Secondly, along with that, again, just foundational principles before we get into some of our notes, work is inherently good. Now, you probably can agree with the first one that God is a worker, but maybe this one's a little harder because you say, that's bad news, I, I hate working. But Work in and of itself is inherently good. You think about it, God didn't mind getting his hands dirty, so to speak, and, and creating and, and, and forming the universe and forming our, the world that we live in. Genesis 2 talks about how he worked to bring it into existence, which means that if God is doing it, it must be inherently good because God doesn't do anything that's bad. God does what is good. And so work in and of itself is meant to be inherently good good. And remember, you are made in the image of God who is a worker. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. It reminds us that Adam and Eve are given a responsibility of working the garden and tending to it. That's before sin enters the picture. Many of us think of our jobs and, and, and it's just labor and toil and, and we may not like it very much and we think, well, that's the result of work. But work was actually good before the curse. It's the curse that made work difficult. And, 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 and laborious. It, it made it hard. That's what the curse did. And so what I want us to see is that engaging in work is something that is inherently good. It's part of God's design, divine design for us as human beings. I, I think this helps explain part of why there's something meaningful when you do something productive, right? You get, you get to the end of the week and you're like, I did something productive. Or, you know, you, you do a project or, you, you know, work is fulfilling. It's meant to be somewhat fulfilling. That's also why I think 
you retire, but you don't really retire, right? You're still working. You're, you're retired from your nine to five, your, your vocation, so to speak, but you're still working because we're always seeking to find some sense of, of purpose and meaning and work provides that because work is something that is inherently good and godlike. Now, having said that, and even though God is a worker and even though work is inherently good, and this is in your notes, our work was never meant to define who we are. Your work, your job, your title, your fill-in-the-blank, even for you stay-at-home moms or dads or those who are volunteering, you don't get necessarily a paycheck. Your work or the things that you do, maybe you can just make it bigger, are not meant to define who you are. Now, our work is more than, than, than simply what we do, okay? So there is a quality to it, but it's not meant to define who we are. Listen to what Paul writes in, in a similar passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. And so apparently there were people, there were slaves who were coming to Christ and they were still slaves but they were coming to Christ and they were recognizing that they were free in Christ. They were equal in Christ. And yet they were bothered by the fact that they're still slaves. They're struggling with that. How do, we, how do I worship with my master? How do I still function and yet I'm a slave? I'm supposed to be free. How do I wrap my mind around that? And Paul says, look, if you can gain your freedom, do that. That's, that's completely appropriate for you to do. But don't let the fact that you're a slave hold you back in the meantime. Why? Because when, when they came to Christ, even though they were still slaves, they became free in the most important sense of the word. Listen again to what Paul says. He says, For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. And, and some of the slaves who had come to Christ needed to be reminded that their identity was not primarily as a slave. Their identity was primarily as a free person in Jesus Christ. And I think this is relevant because there's, there's some of you who may have a job where you work under a lot of people. And, and, and maybe there's a lot of people, and maybe it's not you in particular, but someone you know, and you feel, you feel unsatisfied. You, you feel less than because you are low on the totem pole, or maybe you don't get respected, and, and maybe you don't feel like you have much significance because of where you rank or where the title that you have or the title that you don't have. And what Paul would remind us is don't define yourself Based on that, don't get your identity from that. Who you are is defined by the fact that you are free in Christ. You are in Christ, no matter how many people you work for or work for you or any of that stuff. And so God is encouraging them to separate their identity from their job and to realize their true identity in Christ. And so you may be a slave, Paul says, but you're free because of who you are in Christ. Consequently, Paul also gives the other side he says, similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. In other words, listen, those of you who are, who are free, who may own slaves or servants, that may be a better word for it, is servants, but word is slaves, but who own slaves or servants, don't forget that you're a slave yourself to Christ. And so in both cases, neither slaves nor masters were to define themselves by their job or their title or how many people they had working for them or how many people they had working 
that they are working for. They, they were to find their identity from who they were in Christ. I'm free in Christ, but I'm also a slave in Christ. I've got a master. And so I go about my work from a place of security because I know who I am, but I also go about my work from a place of accountability because I know I've got somebody to answer to, no matter how many people are answering to me. And I think this is important because even sometimes we do it unintentionally, but, but you see this in the workplace. I mean, you just think about this in regard to the people that you work with or who work under you or who work uh, above you. When, when you have people who define themselves based on the job they have or the title they hold or the responsibilities or, or even some of the perks that they get, it actually can end up interfering with the work and, and the relationships in the workplace. Let me give you an example. Have you, ever, have you ever worked around someone or known someone who no matter what it was on the job or in the group, the idea always had to be their idea or they always had to get credit for it, right? And so if it's not their idea, they don't want to play. And, and what happens is the team ends up suffering. Somebody else has to pick up the slack because they don't want to do that. They don't want to fill in the gaps. So somebody else has to fill in the gaps. Somebody else has to, to step up. I mean, you say, what's going on there? Well, their sense of self-esteem, their sense of importance, their sense of, uh, of significance is wrapped up in it being their idea of them being in charge because that's, they define themselves by that and by the attention that they get from that. It's more about them than it is the job or anybody else. Or think about how interpersonal relationships are affected when a person's sense of identity is derived from their job and time and resources and energy are lost while people contend for who gets the credit, right? But while our work is not meant to define who we are, it is meant to express whose we are. Your work should never define who you are, but it ought to express whose you are. Our work matters to God. What, what you do Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday or whatever your work schedule is matters to God. After all, you were created in the image of the one who works. One of the problems that we have, and I was thinking about this, we separate things in our lives into the sacred and the secular. Think about some of the things that people will say to me. Like they'll say a word or they'll, they'll talk about something. They're like, sorry, I didn't mean to talk about that in front of a preacher. Or, or you'll say certain things in, in a church building that you won't, that, or sorry, you'll say certain things outside of a church building that you won't say inside a church building or, or around other people. And I get there's different contexts, and there's going to be things that, that we talk about in certain areas, you know, in certain places and certain people around that we may not. But, but should we really look that different? Because the reality is everything is meant to be sacred, not just when we're here or not just when you're around a preacher or around other Christians. Every part of our life is meant to be sacred. You think about the whole verse that sets, or the verse that sets this whole section up in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul writes at the very beginning of all this section before he gets into family and work and marriage, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so he starts, he, he, he gives this verse, and then, then he says, here's what it looks like in a marriage. And here's what it looks like in, in a family with parents and children. And here's what it looks like in the workplace. And so whether it's in your marriage or in your family or even at your work and your relationships there, it's all an expression of whose you are. What you do on Sunday mornings ought not to be the only expression. All of it is meant to be that way. I, I like how uh, one person put it. He said, your theology 
should become your biography. I love that. Your theology should become your biography. What you believe, if you truly believe this, ought to write the story of your life. It ought to affect every facet of who you are, including your work. And so whatever your vocation, your work, your career, whatever it is, if you are a Christian, it's meant to be an expression of whose you are because it's meant to be done out of reverence. Let me just give you a couple of different ways. I think it's the only, the mainly the two ways that, that it's an expression of whose we are. One, how we treat our work. So how you go about your work, how you treat your work, how you view your work is an expression of whose you are. Paul says to the slave in Ephesians chapter 6 and to the Christian in general, Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know the Lord will reward each of you for whatever good you do, whether slave or free. Paul speaks to the slave as seeing himself or herself as a slave to Christ, and he encourages them to see their work as not being from their master or their boss or their employer, but for Christ. Paul reminds us that in, here in Ephesians 6, that no matter who your vocational superior is, you've got a far greater superior that you have to answer to. And, and, and if you're, even if your vocational superior doesn't see everything you do, does. He sees everything. There's always going to be stuff that you do that nobody notices. Even here in church, and, and some of you, you know, provide so much service to, to what we do, what God is doing here at 23, that nobody notices, but God does. God sees, and Paul says that God will reward accordingly. And though it may go unseen by men, it does not go unseen by God. And how we treat our work is an expression of whose we are. Secondly, how we treat others in our work is an expression of whose we are. How we treat those that we work with is an expression of whose we are. Notice that Paul says for slaves and masters to treat one another in the same way. That's what he says in verse 5. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. He jumps down to verse 9 and he says, down there he writes other verses in between, but I'm going to jump down to verse 9. And he says, masters, slaves in the same way. What's the same way? With fear and respect and sincerity of heart. So slaves, you treat your masters this way, but guess what? Masters, you got to treat your slaves in the same way. And don't threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. We talked about this a little bit last week with, um, with parents and dads in particular, not exasperating their children. You know, in that culture, dads had a lot of power. There's a lot of civic protection behind them to where they could pretty much do whatever they wanted to with their kids. A little bit different, obviously, now. You still can make choices. You just don't have the backing civically. And, and so what happened is that, that parents and dads in particular, they could just do whatever they wanted to do. And Paul's like, don't, don't go down that path. Don't choose that path because you, you're not called to use your power and your authority to just make your kids whatever you want them to do because it's going to drive them to the point of anger and resentment. You're going to exasperate And certainly our culture is different, but the temptation is still the same, right? As dads, as parents, we still have a, a tendency, I know I do, you get mad, your kids aren't doing what you want, you threaten your kids, 
use that, and sometimes that can create exasperation. I'm not saying that there's not times for that, but it can exasperate our kids, and that threat is very real and prevalent. So Paul kind of gives the same command to masters. And he says, look, you, 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 are, you are responsible to them. Threaten them. Don't use your power as a means to lord that over them. You think about this. The default mechanism that we have oftentimes is if you have somebody under you, what's the quickest way to get them to do what you want? For those of you with kids, what's the quickest way to get them to do what you want? Is it to say, a bribe them, there you go. Uh, Touche, I should have thought through this. But the quickest way is not to say, you know, little Johnny, please. The quickest way oftentimes is to threaten them or bribe them, I guess. But then if they don't take the bribe, then it's to threaten them, whatever way works. Right? The, The easiest way, shortcut way, when we have those that are under us, is to threaten them, to remind them who's the boss, right? Like the guy in the joke at the beginning. Didn't work out too well for him, but, but that's the quickest way if you have the power. Unfortunately, it's also the way that erodes relationships in the marriage, in the family, in the work, in the organization. And so he says, don't threaten them. Don't use your power and authority that it's exasperating and threatening. Treat your slaves, treat those under you, treat those working alongside you with respect and fear and sincerity of heart. Why? Because you have a master and you're going to have to answer to him for how you steward them. And so how I treat the people I work with is an expression of whose I am as well. And so as we wrap things up, I want to just give you three kind of overarching, you probably already saw one of them, three overarching principles I just I think this is good for work, but I also think it's really good for just life in general. Uh, and the first one is this: every person has value in, in your workplace and your job and 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 wherever it is. You, every person is valuable. Some of you have jobs where people work for you. Okay, all of us at one point or another are going to have somebody do some work for us. I think about people in, in customer service. You know, again, don't, don't just think about people that work under you at the job. Think about people that may, you go to the grocery store. They don't work for you, but they're serving you. Or somebody does some work on your house, work on your car. All of those are examples of people that work so easy sometimes when we get dissatisfied. Oh, let me get, here's a good example. How many of you go through, and if you have to wait longer than like 10 seconds, you start getting mad? You get mad at the person in front of you. You get mad at the people that are serving you. And, and it's, it's so easy when we are dissatisfied to get frustrated, to maybe even, you know, talk about someone or say something to someone. And it's easy to view those people that we come in contact with, whether it's at the store or, or at the supermarket or someone who does some work for us in, in some capacity or another, to view them as a faceless person who's simply hired to perform a task. And yet, they are someone that Jesus died for. Someone that Jesus loves and died for. That, that you come in contact with. And, and they're creating the image of God. And they may be hired by you. But what if, you're, what if God has put you in that position? Put you in their presence to bless their life in that moment. I, I think about somebody here who's telling me he, he went to the bank. 
and, and, and the teller was having a rough day, and, and he just, and she's telling him all about it, and he just simply said, I don't know who can help you, but I know one person who can, it's Jesus. What if God has you where you are to bless them where they are? Every person is valuable. Secondly, no task, no job is valueless. Because God sees it all and he rewards accordingly. You know, sometimes it's easy to elevate certain jobs over others. And it is true that, that some jobs training, they, they require more experience than others. It's also true that some jobs, um, they pay more money, they have greater status, but that does, one job is more important than another. A person is not is not better than someone else simply because they have more degrees or a certain title behind their name or they make certain amount of money. No, no job is valueless and no, I guess I could say it the other way, no job is, is, is greater than any other in that respect because they all serve a purpose. I, I think about uh, the, this example. I may have told you this before. Several years ago, actually couple decades ago, in, in Philadelphia, they, the garbage workers, all the public service workers struck, but the garbage workers, they felt it the most. Garbage workers in Philadelphia struck. Now, we probably all, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have you know, made a joke about garbage workers? There's always a joke in there somewhere, right? I guess they can join the club because everybody makes jokes about preachers anyway, so you know, they're, they're right in line. But they struck for three weeks, three weeks. And in that time, the city of Philadelphia became a garbage dump. They were, if you've ever looked at pictures of this, they, they were piling up old mattresses and garbage and just, in, it's piling up in the streets. There's one, I think it's the, um, the old Philadelphia, I think it's the Forum maybe, or the, the big basketball arena. There's just garbage piled up on top of the steps. And it became, in three weeks, it became a literal garbage dump. Now, nowadays, cities don't let it get that far because they feel the, the ramifications of that, but it just underscores the reality that some jobs, some tasks that seem so low are actually very critical, but you just don't realize it until they're not done, right? Even jobs here at church, and we don't even think, think about all of the things that go into that. No task, no job is valueless. God sees it all. I love this quote Sue Monk Kidd is an author. I just, I love what she says. It's so convicting to me. She says, I, I heard a writer once say she viewed her work as though in some way God was at the tip of her pen. That thought struck me. I began to view what I was doing very differently. I saw a sacredness in it I had never glimpsed before. God is at the tip of our scalpels, our screwdrivers, our computer terminals, our bags, our pencils, and our pens. When we envision him and his purpose in what we do, his presence in the midst of it. We are in our inward conversation as we work, not strain. He becomes our partner, our collaborator. The secret conversation is fueled by offering our work to God, task by task, moment by moment. We not only do it with God, we do it for God. At the beginning of each endeavor, whether it's typing a letter, giving a seminar, preparing a meal, it's for you. And we can refer the least little thing back to him. Not only does this tuned in to his presence as we work, but it does wonders for the quality of work and our own peace of mind. I love that. This is what we do to give glory to God, which leads me to the last thing. God desires to use our work to accomplish his. God desires to use your work to ultimately accomplish and his purposes. I, I love this story, and I'll just kind of close with this. Uh, maybe you've heard it before. I know you've heard of the... Um, 
you'll know at the end. It's a story of a guy named Charles. Charles was a, uh, he, he had visions of being a missionary when he got older. He wanted to go to China in particular and be a missionary, carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a whole bunch of people. Well, he went to school, went to seminary to, to eventually go into the mission field. Seminary, he ended up getting married. That's a good thing. But in the course of his time in seminary, just after he had gotten married, his wife got pretty sick. And she was not in great shape. But one of the things that was very evident to him as they kind of went through all the things that they were going to have to do in going overseas and being uh, missionaries and doing mission work was he just did not think that she would be able to make it. That if they went overseas, that it wouldn't be long very far into their marriage, that he just wouldn't, she, she wouldn't be able to make it. And so he had to make a choice. Do I, do I risk that with my wife or, or do I stay stateside? And so he, he ended up burying his dream or putting it aside at least. And he stayed stateside, went to get a job with his dad. Dentist, the dentistry, but his dad also had a side business selling unfermented wine to area churches for their communion. And so even though he's working as a dentist, Charles ended up, over the unfermented wine business, and he was doing well, working hard at it, but he was really struggling with it because he had these visions. He's, he, he, you know, he has in his mind, right, that he wants to do something grand, something great for God, and yet here he was practicing dentistry and unfermented wine, not what he had visions of doing. But he stuck with it, and after a while, he began to notice the business making more and more money, more and more churches were buying the unfermented wine from him for the communion. And so he finally decided, you know what, probably not going to get a chance to go overseas, but maybe I can do something with this business to advance God's work in the meantime. And so as more and more came in, he began to take some of the and he started sending other missionaries to the land that he once dreamed of going, but never got the chance to go. As the years went on, he amassed quite a fortune. And since then, the Welch family has supported hundreds and hundreds of missionaries to bring the gospel all over the globe. God's desire is to use your work to accomplish his. His work and his purposes. And there's no telling how he might do that. I'm sure Charles Welch has no idea. But I do know this. God has never turned away anything that was offered, any work that was offered in submission to his will and his plan and his purposes. Your work matters to God, whatever it is, and he will use it for his glory.